Uh, hi, my name is Howard. I'm an alcoholic. How you doing? I should mention at the top that uh, I'm not home. I'm house sitting right now. And they have landline telephones in every room in this house. And each one has that uh, um, caller ID thing. And they're all offset by a couple of seconds. So if the phone rings, I'm going to go on mute for about 15, 20 seconds because it sounds like pandemonium in here anytime the phone rings. So let's hope no one calls. Uh, thanks for asking me to, uh, to share with the group, Mark. This, this group means a, a hell of a lot to me. And I try not I try not to miss it on Wednesdays. So I'm supposed to tell you in a general way what my life was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And I'll try to do that in a half hour's time. Um, if I go much past that, believe me, it's embe embellishment. Uh, the first thing that you should know about my childhood is that my dad died suddenly when I was two years old and my brother was nine weeks old. And that sent the family dynamic reeling for years and years. Um, no one knew how to, no one in my family knew how to share with a little kid that his dad was dead and that the person living in the house was a stepfather. Um, and this is, it was just a mess. It was a mess. I couldn't, I couldn't speak to, uh, my, my grandmother, my dad's mother, because she just break up crying and I felt bad for making her cry. And believe me, this was fuel. This was self pity fuel for the next 20 years of my life. And I spent a lot of time in school, in grade school, feeling sorry for myself and uh, envious of my friends. Father's Day was unbearable. I just wanted to hide under a rock all day. Um, I found myself sad a lot and angry and not really understanding because I couldn't get a fucking straight answer out of my family. Right? Later in my adult life, I had to go looking for, for cousins, for people who knew my dad, uh, but weren't, you know, super, super close, just to get an idea of what he was like, you know, whether, and, and I found out after exhaustive searching that he was just like me. I never thought I would outlive my dad. He was 37 when he died. And when I turned 37, I, it just messed with my head. Anyway, uh, so I spent a lot of time uh, in my own head, feeling sorry for myself growing up um, until I was introduced to alcohol and cannabis at the age of 15. And I took to it like a duck to water. 
this got me out of my head. I felt like I belonged with a group of people. And uh, I kind of felt whole. Um, the progression of my disease was really fast because I only drank for five years. But in those five years, I became a daily drinker, a daily smoker, uh, and eventually a daily liar, a daily cheat. And when I could, I would steal from you. Um, money was tight. So I did some stealing to get what I needed and I am, I needed it. Um, drinking, smoking, other drugs immediately became the most important thing in my life because I hated my life. And I thought this would make it better. I was in, uh, a deep depression throughout my, my, my drinking years. And after that, it, it wasn't until I was 30 years old that I was diagnosed with clinical depression. And, uh, and I've got it bad. I've got it bad. I've attempted suicide many times. Um, obviously none successful. Um, I had gotten into some trouble in, in uh, after high school, and uh, my my way of of getting out of this was to uh, kill myself, and uh, it didn't work. My mom took me to a psychiatrist. I lied to him. He thought I was fit to go to uh, to college, and I had to go to college. All my friends were going to college, and I couldn't think for myself. So I went to college. I chose Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, which in the late 70s was the party school. And a lot of my friends were going there. For the next two years, I majored in drinking and drug use. That's it. Um, I knew they had a library. I heard it was nice. But I uh, had absolutely no business being in college when I was 18 and 19 years old. Uh, I dropped out after my sophomore year. And two weeks after that, I had my last drink at that time. Um, I had, uh, I went to a party with my little sister and I saw so much of me in her that it, I kind of put two and two together, drink, trouble, right? So I, uh, I made a promise to myself and, and my mom that I was going to quit drinking forever. I didn't know from one day at a time. I didn't know from Alcoholics Anonymous. All I knew was I was in trouble from the inside out. And maybe, maybe my drinking and drug use had something to do with it. My first full day of sobriety, this is in June of 1981, was spent as a summer camp counselor. My first day of sobriety, I was given 10 10-year-old 10 boys to be responsible for. And uh, that was pretty insane. I would sneak off, have my counselor in training take care of my kids. And I would take branches. I'd go off into the woods and take branches and swing them against tree trunks 
I didn't know it was happening to my body and my mind, but I was going through a pretty nasty withdrawal. And there was really no one I could talk to at this summer camp where I was working. As it turned out later in the summer, my sister got put into a, an adolescent treatment center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. See, in the early 80s, this was the start of the treatment boom. And you were either sent to Louisiana, like myself, or uh, Minnesota. And uh, at, at my sister's family week, I shot off my mouth, calling myself uh, chemically dependent. That seemed to be the, the, the phrase that I heard most often. And uh, after the, the counselors got done working on my sister, they started working on me, getting me to stay in treatment. Well, I had this major responsibility at this summer camp. Uh, I told them I'd, I'd finish my job and then I'd come back afterwards. They didn't believe me, but I did show up. And I spent five weeks in primary treatment in Louisiana. This was my introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, it was my introduction to uh, spirituality. I had a fairly religious upbringing, but nothing that was really going to stick. Um, but this was very, uh, this was in the deep South in the, in the Bible belt. And we were, we were, uh, told of the sins of alcohol and it just what I felt like I was in another world, but there was something about the support. There was something about the fellowship that I really liked. And I chose to stay. After the primary treatment, they sent me to Thibodeau, Louisiana, even farther south, right on the Gulf of Mexico, to a halfway house. I was in this halfway house for four months where I started to learn about basic living skills, you know, getting up, brushing my teeth, making my bed, uh, going to work, uh, working full time and working hard. I worked in a lumber yard. And, uh, and that was the beginning of my sobriety. After the halfway house, I came back to, uh, to Cleveland um, and Cleveland AA. Now, I, I've heard a lot that people don't really give a shit how it's done in Cleveland, but it was, it was very uh, orthodox, very, uh, uh, we call it traditional today, but uh, it, was, it was pretty orthodox. Uh, I went to meetings every day. I was active at every one of the meetings that I went to, whether it was setting up chairs or uh, putting out ashtrays, cleaning ashtrays, making coffee, shaking hands. Um, when, I, when I went to meetings, I was busy. I got, I got myself a sponsor who was a big book thumper. And, um, and that's, how I, that's how I got sober. Um, there was lots of step work, 12-step calls, um, hospital visits, 12-step um, retreats. I did everything that I could to stay sober and find a happy life. Sometimes I felt happy because I was doing good things, but ultimately the depression would rise up again and uh, I would have, uh, have some problems. 
everybody has problems. What I was trying to do was avoid the trouble. Uh, the trouble that came with what happens when I put alcohol in my body. I had various jobs in my early sobriety. I was on the radio uh, for three years. I worked in restaurants for 10 years. I was a limousine driver. And I learned a lot of things from all of those jobs. I learned that I didn't like those jobs. My depression got worse. There were more suicide attempts. I'm trying to take 40 years and condense it into a few minutes. It's not, it's not real easy. Um, after, after my time in radio, um, there was a uh, suicide attempt. I was put in a hospital and I was introduced to CODA and uh, started learning about codependency and how it fit. It really fit. Um, I was working as a, uh, uh, a receptionist in, uh, in a medical lab in Cleveland when I got a job offer to uh, work in IT for this same medical lab, but it was in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, I thought long and hard about it. And I thought a new beginning, why not? So I came down here to Columbus and uh, started working in IT and really flying by the seat of my pants because when I was hired to do this job, I could email, I could surf the internet. I didn't know an IP address from a hole in the ground. And I trudged along. I met a woman, we got married. Um, and I ignored every red flag there was to ignore about my first marriage. We lasted maybe four years and divorced. Um, I moved out. I'm seeing a pattern developing here. What's going on? Uh, after, after the divorce, um, was going to meetings, met someone else, fell in love, got married. And I should mention, after the first divorce, I started questioning the existence of God. I was starting to hear and see hypocrisy in the meetings that I was going to, where a person would, you know, God bless you and God this, God that, and they'd hit their dog, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and that troubled me. It was at the same time that I started reading a book called Imaginary Friend, written by a local writer. And that book changed my life because by the time I was done with it, I was, I was atheist. I just, there was no God. God wouldn't have let all this crappy stuff happen to me and everyone else. And uh, 
my life changed. The second marriage was, uh, was really good for about seven years. And uh, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't changing. I started getting resentments. I went to fewer meetings and I started hearing things that I wanted to hear, like, you were too young when you got sober. I was 20, right? I didn't do enough drinking. Um, you're not an alcoholic. I had uh, family, in-laws telling me that I, that I wasn't an alcoholic because I, I only drank for five years. And I chose to listen to that rather than things that my sponsor was telling me things that I heard at the meetings that I chose to go to. What started at five meetings became four, became three, became two, became one, became none. I got into a shouting match with another AA uh, after the meeting about something inane. It was either politics or religion. I don't know. But I chose to not go to meetings after that. And it was within a year, I picked up a drink after 35 years of uninterrupted sobriety. I'm not proud of that. It hurt, it hurt like a son of a bitch to come back. I drank for three years and finally realized that I couldn't drink like an average person. I, was, uh, I had plenty of enablers that kept me going for three years. And after three years, I just had that, that, that feeling that, that um, drink trouble again. My marriage was starting to uh, fizzle, my second marriage. And uh, I thought if I, if I quit drinking again, I'll save my marriage. It didn't happen that way. Um, I did get sober uh, May 9th of 2020. Uh, this is when the uh, when COVID first hit, and uh, things got really scary. I saw I saw COVID for what it was, and. Uh, it scared the crap out of me. Um, it was around this time that I got introduced to West Side Agnostics. And I started going to meetings uh, at noon and nine o'clock. Not every day, but most days. Um, from there, I got introduced to Tusnua. And I felt like I was home. I didn't know that there was secular AA. And now I knew. And it was awesome. I started making friends from all over the world. And uh, very grateful for that. As talk of uh, my second divorce got 
louder. I started to get uh, pretty depressed. Now, I had been through several hospitalizations for my depression, anxiety, panic attacks. I've had 20 ECT treatments. Those are the shock treatments. I've had TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation, which I don't recommend. Uh, I've had ketamine treatments, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, you name it, I've had the therapy. Um, the ECT, the shock treatments, did a real number on my memory. Um, so I, it forces me to, uh, uh, to pay attention more, to listen more. Um, where I'm at today, uh, the divorce is getting moved up to the beginning of October. I'm looking for a place to live. I'm looking for part-time work during the uh, pandemic. I picked up uh, acrylic pour painting. Um, it's uh, been one of the biggest joys of my life. I never thought I'd have a hobby where I could actually make a little money. Um, but so I'm painting. I'm looking for a place to live now. Um, I'm feeling pretty sad, pretty angry. Um, I don't. I don't like the circumstances that are around me now. So what do I do? I keep showing up, keep going to the meetings, making myself talk to people. When I'm depressed, I clam up. You know, I, I'm, I'm not real big to divulge information about myself. It was one of the things that uh, uh, broke up my second marriage. A very difficult time communicating. Um, just last Saturday, I was in a real rough, a real bad place. Um, the house that I'm house sitting at right now has a tray on, on the kitchen counter with nine bottles of booze on it, six of which are actually worth drinking. And I was getting thirsty Saturday morning. It's a long story. But I put out the bat signal out on uh, the WhatsApp chats, and a few of you showed up in uh, showed up online and uh, gave me some very healthy uh, uh, alternatives to where I was. Um, I threw a, a, a towel over the booze out of sight, out of mind. It doesn't phase me. If that booze wasn't there, there are two taverns across the street. You know, uh, uh, can't run, can't hide. It's uh, alcohol is out there. And what I'm responsible for is getting myself as, as healthy as I can uh, to have the defense against the first drink. I'm kind of running out of things to say here, which is... Uh, usually uh, uh, 
which usually tells me that I'm done talking. So uh, again, Mark, thank you. Um, thank you, Tusnoa. I absolutely love you guys. I really do. And uh, you've uh, saved my life. And with that, I'll pass.